0: the wrong button here. There we go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I hope everybody's having a beautiful day. I hope the birds are singing. The sun is shining. I hope that the wind is at your back. I got an incredible guest with an incredible story. The one and only Dr. Catherine McLean, PhD. She is a neuroscientist with expertise in studying the effects of mindfulness, meditation, and psychedelics on cognitive performance emotional well-being, spirituality, and brain function. As a research scientist and faculty member at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine, she conducted clinical trials of psilocybin and other psychedelic compounds. She's an author, a world traveler. She's also a mother, a wife, a sister, and a daughter. And I could keep going on and on with the title. She's written an incredible new book called Midnight Water. And I really think that It was Dr. Cassandra Vietin, who summed up your book in a few words that I'm just going to plagiarize and say, as a truth-telling, paradigm-busting, open-hearted, scholarly memoir. Catherine, Dr. Catherine McLean, thank you so much for being here today. How are you?
1: I'm doing good. Uh, My voice is not usually this gravelly, but I guess this is my life now. I'll just be speaking about midnight (laughs) water until I die. So (laughs) my new speaking voice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that's what happens when we we get to a certain point and we're always changing, like sometimes in a trip or when you take a psychedelic substance, you get to a level and then everything changes, you know, so maybe your voice is changing on this part of the journey right here. Right. (laughs) So Midnight Water. I love the idea that the title is always used in the book. And I always it's kind of like a where's Waldo for me. Like we always look in I'm always looking in the book to find out where they use the title. And I was it was beautifully placed in there. Maybe you could give a little bit of background on why you found the need to write the book at this time. Well, I knew I wanted to write it 10 years ago. Right.
1: And my life had to like, catch up to the ending of the book for me to write it. And there were many points in the last 10 years that I thought, oh, this is the end of the book. Oh no, this is the end of the book. And then life just kept revealing more and more. So what I would say is that uh, midnight Water was like a transmission from the future. You know, when I was sitting with my sister in the hospital, mm. I knew the name of the book. I knew the whole book. I knew I was going to write it. It was like fate. I had no choice. And then the question was, when am I going to live into the moment when this becomes reality? And I the craziest and also most accurate thing about psychedelics, they will show you the future. And we are, I don't know how many pharmaceutical reps and clients and doctors are ready for that. You know, it's like, do you want to see 10 years into your future? Do you want to even see six months into your future? Because I promise you that information is coming.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of the pharmaceuticals are looking into the past. It seems like. (laughs) (laughs) that.
1: Right? Yeah, Yeah, no. And I just, you know, I think that we have, I mean, there's so much that I can say about psychedelics vis-a-vis healthcare, but my sense is that they are not healthcare. They don't belong in medical institutions. Because what they do is they provide information and communication okay. across these dimensions that our science says are not accessible. They're not, you can't bridge these dimensions. And then psychedelics come in and say, hey, maybe you have back pain because 10 years from now, you will finally figure out that the back pain was trying to get you to change your whole life and quit your job and write this book and have two kids. You know, so you could cure someone, but then they have to live into that cure. And I don't know that that, that's, I love that part of it. You know, that's what the (laughs) book was for me. I'm basically taking people on a 10 year journey of what it looks like to get a message and then live into the treatment. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's eerily reminiscent of the hero's journey for me when I see it that way, you know, it's like you have this call, this call to action. And there's all these threshold guardians that are like, Hey, wait a minute. I don't think you should be working here anymore. Hey, wait a minute. You know, it's, it's just interesting how the ideas of psychedelics can produce miracles for us. And sometimes we're just blind to them. Like we just, even though it's a miracle happening in our lives, we're like, yeah, I'm just gonna pretend that didn't happen right there. So it's almost mind blowing to me.
1: Well, and you know, someone asked me recently, they said, you know, what, why was it? that in 2012 and 13, you encountered something you had never experienced before and you chose to follow it rather than ignore it. And I said, I don't know, maybe that is a personality dimension. Maybe that's just mm. me being a bit of an adrenaline junkie, always curious, always seeking the new experience, but I could have put it on a shelf.
2: Right.
1: I could have put the experience I had with meditation, which I could talk about. I could have put the experience I had with my sister dying, I could have put all that on a shelf and said, I'll deal with this when I'm 80. But there's the catch 22. I saw my sister not be able to wait until she was 80, right to have these questions and answers. She got 29 years. And once you see that you're like, I can't waste a single minute. You know, if it takes me 10 years to figure this out, at least I've done it now while I'm young and have, you know, my wits about me and I can right travel and move around and ask the questions.
0: You know it's, it's interesting when in the book when you begin to reveal the idea of the title, it almost coincides with you being in the room with your sister and like the, I almost like I had little tears coming out of my, my eyes when I started thinking it was it was beautiful in some ways and one of the ways that really grabbed me was the banter that you had with your sister. When she was like, I just want to see my daughter grow up. And she's like, Why? You want to see her grow up be a teenager so she could be a little shit like you were to mom. Like that was (laughs) such a cool sister moment right there. Like I love it right there. That that yeah, and that is beautiful. That was the essence
1: of our relationship. You know, it's like I was the good older daughter. I was the firstborn. I was the older daughter. I did everything right, and she was just the rebel. But interestingly, we kind of switched (laughs) switched places in our twenties. You know, she became the very serious mom. Like I said, she got an insurance policy. Who does that when they're 22? She had her own business. You know, so she became such an adult and stopped rebelling. And that's like what allowed me to start rebelling. And, you know, her daughter now is a teenager and she's not a shit. She's she's perfect. She's great. She's amazing. So I was wrong, you know. Rebecca would have gotten the best possible Mm. teenage daughter ever. So, you know, someone asked me, why do you find death so funny? And I said, well, what's the alternative? Right. You right. know, the alternative sucks. It's like, you might as well find the humor in these moments because otherwise it's just like unbearable. And that's what we had in her hospital room. Like there was the pain and the confusion. Mm. And then right next to it was the humor. Mm. And the humor is what kind of got us through. Like, you know.
0: Yeah. It reminds me of the relationship that kind of the dark humor that psychedelics has in a way that might be preparing us, right? <laughs>
1: No, that's true. And I think I talked about that in chapter two, when I say that the mushrooms have a really twisted sense of humor. Like they think it's cute to invite you to a party and surprise (laughs) you with your worst traumas. Like they think it's like they're helping, you know, they're like celebrating the fact that you're finally aware of this shit that you've hidden away Mm -hmm. and like won't look at. And the mushrooms are like, here it is. Like, are you excited? And they're (laughs) like, oh, no, you don't understand what being a human is like. I'm not excited. This is hard work. And the Muslims are like, why? Come on.
0: Right? We're getting to the good stuff. You know how long I've been trying to hide this? That's why I hid it down there. I don't want it up here. Right? It just right. brings it right to the forefront right there. Yeah, yep. it's 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 interesting to think about the way in which our relationship with reality can really change when we start to have a relationship with, you know, different, heightened states of awareness and, and different sort of, you know, be it psychedelics or any sort of mood altering ideas. Has your, has your niece read your book?
1: No, not yet. And actually I'm so I'm, we're, we're picking her up this Friday, Thursday, Mm -hmm. flying on my book tour to Bermuda and London. And so she's coming with me and my aunt said, Oh, she can read your book while she's on the plane. And I was like, I don't want her reading this until she's 21. You know, so <laughs> that, there's a thing that kicked in in me that, you know, I'd rather have the conversations with her right? based on her questions than have mm-hmm. to kind of live into this story. That's like a little bit removed, you know, it's removed from her mm-hmm. life. Like she remembers her mom, but only a little bit. And, you know, I want to be the, um, it's okay if I'm the crazy aunt, but I don't want to be that crazy. Like I still want her to trust me and come to right. me if there's, if there's an issue. So, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a question, you know, I had, I had some of the copies out and my eight year old daughter started leafing through it. I was like, no, 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 you can't read this. <laughs> and I remembered myself at 10 finding Stephen King, you know, and all mm-hmm. the like craziest stuff I could find in my parents' library. And it's like, she's two years away from that. You know, so the perspective yeah. is so wild.
0: And just the fact that you tell her she can't read it I means she's probably already got a copy in her room reading it, right?
1: <laughs> and she's a great reader, right? So it's like of at course. eight years old, she can read this and have questions about it, understand it. You know, maybe she can't pronounce all the words, but you know, she's pretty precocious.
0: <laughs> Imagine that. Well I'm the in in Hawaii, they say the coconut doesn't fall too far from the tree. <laughs> so you know, you gonna, <laughs> Bermuda you gonna, and London. Are you going to? Yeah, go ahead. You know, a trip to yeah uh, Bermuda and London. Are that are you going to see? Are you going to the beach where you finally laid your dad to rest?
1: So yeah, Church Bay, uh, I don't name it in the book, but um, mm. I'm happy for people to know where it is. It's a very small little secluded cl- cove just on the South shore. It's a oh. kind of a local beach, you know, tourists don't go yeah. there very often. Um, it's actually great scuba diving. There are these huge parrotfish. They're like this big and they look like um, rainbow mermaids from the top.
2: Whoa. And they come all the way
1: up to the surface so that you can see their fin come through the water. And they actually eat, um, eat the coral and they kind of gnaw at the, the hard coral that's right by the beach. And so if you kind of get past where the parrotfish are, there's this amazing scuba diving. And one of the last times I was at church Bay, um, two friends actually came and one of them brought me a microdose of mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the first time in years that I was like, cause with me and mushrooms, I'm like, Oh God, what are they going to show me? You know, like I just, I'm always a little nervous and I'm like, maybe the tiniest amount and it was beautiful. And I went swimming and scuba diving, which I don't recommend, you know, it's like, I want to be clear the way I live my life is not what I think other people should be doing, but it was perfect for me. And I kind of reacquainted myself with that medicine in a way that I'm like, okay, we did the hard stuff Mm -hmm. at the high doses. Can we just like have a different friendship now? Can we just like hang out and like, you don't have to show me everything. Like, I'm
0: good. <laughs> yeah, I was blown away by, I, I think Patrick was the name of the gentleman that you had, that you had spent some time with when, when you were working with mushrooms and stuff. And I was blown away by some of those accounts, you know, when you were getting to build a relationship with them. I was wondering maybe if you could share one of those stories about a time that you and Patrick had had worked with the mushrooms together
1: wow um i mean it really you know meeting patrick and having those experiences and there were only actually three of them but you know three mushroom experiences at those high doses is enough for a lifetime um the the experience that stands out is the last one that i experienced where uh he had recently received a grizzly bear skull from the pacific northwest through his indigenous friends i don't even know how this skull ended up in manhattan (laughs) But when I walked into the room and I saw that skull there, I was like, oh, maybe I don't have a clue what this is about. Like, I thought this is about mushrooms, and then the mushrooms kind of kept showing me other things. And now here we've got a grizzly bear skull. And in that experience, you know, it's hard to describe. It's um, I've done a lot of mushrooms before, but there's something about the ritual container
2: mm-hmm. and
1: the way he would set up everything in the center of the room in a very kind of specific way with this little piece of blue felt that he called the altar
0: but the right. altar
1: you know it, it was as I say in the book I thought it was going to be like a, a zen or like a you know a catholic altar with right. like an actual table but it wasn't it was just on the floor and you actually had to kneel down to to be with it which I think is important you know it's making mm. you see that you're not this like important person you're just right. on the ground and at one point in the middle of the experience um the mushrooms took me to a place that was this kind of um like a vast galaxy that i had visited before but i suddenly understood that they had been showing me my own self like a part of myself or maybe a primordial self something that wasn't like either before or after being human but they were kind of like we've been showing you this place and you thought you were just going to visit but this is like this is you like we've been trying to show you who you are and luckily in that in that space i could finally accept that without it being this like grandiose like oh i'm a galaxy can you imagine if they showed me that the first time i would have started a cult or something i was i was god you know but instead they're like we're gonna test you with all of your worst autobiographical stuff (laughs) and then we're gonna show you that you're a galaxy so when i came out of that Face, I understood that the bear skull was a way of connecting with that galaxy, but like while staying here on earth. And it's another rabbit hole to go down, but for any listeners, there's a whole thing about bear clans, bear cults, the great bear medicine, the dreaming bear. People think that shamans learned originally from bears, how to meditate and dream and how to go into these states of consciousness. So. For this galaxy and the bear skull to finally be like, hey, like you're here. Thanks for coming. Yeah. It really felt like a moment of arrival. You know, I was no longer being initiated. They were like, okay, you you've arrived. Like here we go.
0: Yeah, that's I've never thought about it from that angle. But as you saying that, a bear that goes into hibernation, I mean, it must be an altered state of consciousness as well, right? I mean, that, that like that's a deep meditation if you can just hang out for. You know months on end in the in a quiet dark room under five dried (laughs) grams i'm just kidding
1: (laughs) well think about it right they would go into a cave in total darkness and i'm sure the early shamans were like wait how do they do that like where where do i have to take my mind to be at peace for that amount of time not needing food not needing anything other than darkness so it makes sense and There's actually where I live now, there's a mama bear that has come around a few times. And I feel so lucky. And when people are like, oh, do you have bears? I'm like, not enough. Like, I want Ah. more. i want like, like, please spread the word. I want the bears to know I'm here.
0: Is that what inspired that chapter? Like, I think it was chapter six or seven in the book. Is that what the name came from? Yeah.
1: So mama bear, the actual chapter mama bear was the final initiation
2: Mm -hmm.
1: before being like not crowned, but like, um, like cloaked, you know, it's like, I finally like took on that identity in the in that next chapter with, uh, with Patrick and my husband in the mushroom ceremony. But the mama bear chapter was like the final, I don't know. It was like the final Mm -hmm. karmic release of like all of that old stuff Mm -hmm. that I attributed to like Catherine, my life, the people in my life, my family, I feel like that meditation retreat helped me discard all of that
2: mm-hmm.
1: so that I could then accept that new mantle and like outwardly, nothing changed. Like I'm still Catherine, you know, I still have a lot of her traits and characteristics, but it felt like during that mama bear chapter, Catherine from the previous 36, seven years was dying for good.
0: Mm. And
1: now we're kind of into the birthing phase.
0: So yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because in the beginning of the book, you know, you there's a bit of foreshadowing where you talk about the idea of the midnight water break, and a former teacher runs off and tries to get into her car. And then later in the book, all of a sudden, here you are at this retreat and you're running off. You know what I mean? Oh, no, <laughs> I actually,
1: congratulations. I hadn't made that connection yet. You know, it's it's so true. So when yeah. I met Joan Halifax. And Joan is a fascinating person. You know, she worked with LSD back in the probably early 70s, late 60s with Stan Groff. And she worked with my mentor, Bill Richards. Um, she she says that when the civil rights movement really took off, she decided to be as clear and lucid as possible because she she wanted to be a service. And so she kind of made that transition from like taking tons of LSD and studying it to being a Zen one of the first, if not the first American Zen female teachers, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. what she did was actually revolutionary. Right. Um, and when I went on her retreat, it was because I had felt totally insane for almost a whole year. And the teacher I was working with, I think was getting exasperated. And he's like, you should go sit with Joan Halifax. Like if anyone can figure out what the hell's going on here, like she'll (laughs) be able to figure it out. So it was on a whim. and. I had never sat a full retreat like that before. And what I could say about Joan is she's like an expert in ceremony. Mm-hmm. And she really pulled everyone into almost like the mushroom altar. Her Zendo was like the altar. You don't know it at first. You're kind of sitting, you're going through the motions. And then at some point, things kind of like how I talk about in the book, at some point, the mushroom altar like reveals itself. And that happened to me on retreat with her. And after that switch, when I was in that psychedelic space, that's when she told this story where she was one of the very few white people who had ever been invited into a Native American church ceremony with with peyote. And, you know, I know a few white people who've taken peyote, but it's you get invited. You don't just right. sign up. You don't. There's no like buying a ticket to a retreat. And to be one of the only white people and still try to leave just like strikes me as so audacious. And it's Mm -hmm. like that she, that it even, that she even considered that she could leave, I think speaks to our white privilege. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of our privilege around like, Oh, we'll just take what we want and leave. And why is she telling a story about peyote on a Zen retreat to a bunch of Buddhists and I felt like she's telling me like this is Mm -hmm. a story for me she knows I'm never coming back to her retreat center she's like this is the last chance I've got maybe a few other people liked it but um I really resonated with the fact that she said she was in so much pain like I think pain can make people try to do things like break the rules escape run away sure and that the road man found her and he It wasn't just, oh, I can't believe she left, let's move on. Like they literally couldn't continue without her presence. And so again, that speaks to like, as a white person, sometimes we think like we're special, we're individuals, and we don't understand that we're part of a collective. And he was showing her that he said, even with all your pain and your attitude and your privilege, and you're like feeling like you're above us, we need you back here so we can keep going. And he made her continue the ceremony. So, you know, flash forward a, a couple, several weeks to sitting with my sister. And she literally died right at midnight. Mm. And I don't say in the book why, but the reason there were all these half full cups of water in the room was because she kept asking for water her whole last day. Again, as a materialist, you might say, oh, she was just like her sodium levels were all off. She was dying. She was trying. It. She was thirsty, but she couldn't balance out the, the water but from a cosmic perspective it's like she was placing all of these water mm-hmm. glasses around the room to 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 initiate that ritual like here we go like we're going into this ceremony you know it started around seven or eight in the, in the evening i think when she started her palliative sedation and she she died at midnight i saw all these you know, half full cups of water. And like, it was like, I was back in the Zendo with Joan and she was saying, you can't leave the ceremony, like no matter what you have to finish. And again, in that moment, I'm like, easy, right? Like (laughs) I just, I was so full of the positive aspects of the mystical experience with being with my sister that I thought that's easy. Of course I'll finish the ceremony. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how hard it was going to get. And so in a way, both my sister and Joan gave me what I needed in that moment to survive the next 10 years. Like, how did they know what was coming? I mean, Joan had been, Joan worked with dying people. She had been through Mm -hmm. grief. She understood. I was, she was one of the few people actually emailing me back during the hospital vigil. And, you know, she was with me. Um, There's no way that any of us knew how hard grief could get. And that there would be a reason to stay with it, right? Not just like cut it off, take some antidepressants, get back, you know, get back to work. Mm. There are ways to cut off grief. Sure. That's the same as leaving the ceremony, I think.
0: That's well said. Yeah, I I never thought about it like that. But that, you know, and it reminds me of another quote that the roadman said that Something along the lines of you don't get to choose when the ceremony's over.
1: <laughs> I was like, whoa, that's pretty powerful. Right. And you know, what you pointed out about the Mama Bear chapter is so for Joan, it was her back pain. But you know, she had gone blind as a kid. She had lost, I think her mom had died of alcoholism. Like mm. she had a pretty like traumatic history. And so maybe her back pain was just like the way she symbolized that reaching her limit. But for me, on the meditation retreat, it was the flashback memories to my childhood, The not just the what of it, but the feeling of it. I was re-feeling everything somatically in my body mm. and being like, this is nuts. I don't want to feel this ever again. So isn't it interesting that as an adult, the only reasonable thing is to escape the situation, mm. to just to feel what we've already felt as children or as teenagers or as young adults. I mean, it really speaks to the kind of pain that a lot of us have carried for so long that when we're finally confronted with it, we're like, I'm out of (laughs) here. Like, this is nuts. But there was nowhere to go. I couldn't drive. I was in the middle of nowhere. Like, I could have gotten lost. So thankfully, the setting was like the roadman being like, she's not going anywhere. She'll be back. (laughs) I did. I walked right back in, sat down, and it was like, okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think um when I hear that story and I, I pair it with some of the things we were previously talking about, you know, there's something to be said about the container, like the rites, the ceremony, the ritual. And it seems like, you know, whether whether it is the altar from Patrick, whether it is being able to go back into the retreat and everyone is still on their pillow or whether it is sitting with your sister you know, there's something to be said about that container. And it seems like in modern medicine today, there is no more rites, There's no more rituals. There's no more something that surrounds us. Does, does that seem accurate to you? It seems like that's lacking. I see
1: what you're saying, you know, and as soon as you started saying that I started thinking about the Hopkins session room and how the session room is like an altar. It is like yeah. one of those spaces, but around it is there's no, cultural container for what is happening in that room so the room works The i i know for sure the room works and it Mm -hmm. functions in the same way as a zendo or as an altar or a temple or a church but then just outside of that room there's no continuity and i remember when i was at hopkins like just trying to figure that out why is it that i can walk into a room and it's one way Mm -hmm. and then i walk out of that room and it's something totally different and that's what made my mind like crack you know I don't like the term psychosis but it's the closest Mm -hmm. we have to what happened to me and psychosis happens when you're confronted with two competing realities and it's like they can't they cannot exist together so one you know one wins and usually the mainstream consensus reality wins and for some people the other one wins (laughs) for a time and um no I mean this is I, so I currently live on 120 acres of mostly forest. I have like a couple humans, you know, within driving distance, but there's a reason that I chose to live this way. And it's because I can't control the container outside of my meditation room, my house, you know, even like my driveway, but the woods and the forest and the animals create a buffer to whatever goes on here. And I hope that more people can experience that here. I don't know when, but at least for me now, I know that if I go into those spaces, I have that cultural container around me of wildness, of nature. And for a lot of people, I mean, they're doing this stuff in, you know, they're doing ayahuasca in Brooklyn. Like, what is, I mean, how do you do that? You know, it's like, how do you take it out of the jungle and say, good luck. Like, as soon as you step out of this door, you're on the subway
0: yeah, it's you know it, it's interesting to think about that part of your life where all of a sudden you're introduced to what could theoretically be a dream job for so many people. you're like, oh, especially at the time you were doing it, you're like, whoa, talk about like trend setting and pushing the boundaries of what is possible. And then, upon you know leaving, you find yourself some in the book you had written something close to, I couldn't stand being in a place that seemed to care so little for human life, where the only point was working as hard as you could, bringing in as much research dollars as possible until you croaked. I couldn't stomach giving people psilocybin and watching miracles happen against the backdrop of shooting deaths and abandoned buildings. It's like the same. It's so that's that's mesmerizing to me.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there are (laughs) what I can say is there are probably more spiritually adept people who can do that. And I knew that I couldn't, you know, there are plenty of people meditating in refugee camps in mm. situations like that. If you look at the Tibetan monks, the way they were tortured by the Chinese mm. in the 50s and 60s. So clearly it's possible right. to, do, to hold that. But I was at, at the point that I was at, I didn't have a lineage. I didn't have teachers mm. with me. I didn't have a community. So I was trying to gut it out on my own. And I right. think that's what the American wild west cowboy thing is it doesn't work for enlightenment it just doesn't work you can get to a certain point you know with Mm -hmm. all the brain hacking and psychedelics and all of that stuff but at some point and this is what a teacher said to me once he said the point isn't to um like triumph over death it's to get to a point where even if you died on that spot you could completely surrender and Mm. you would trust whoever was around you or whatever was around you to to take care of what was left, you know, that you could just completely depart and that would be fine. And he said, it just, it challenges our notion of like, at Hopkins, I was like the lone wolf, you know, it's like, I was trying to do this thing that people had done before, but not that many and not that recently. And, you know, my other colleagues managed it the way they managed it. But I don't think a lot of them allowed themselves to surrender the way I was ultimately surrender to the space of psilocybin.
0: Mm-hmm. I love what Patrick said. When you after after being in that state where you're finding out, like, hey, maybe this, maybe it's a it's a lot trickier than I thought. And like you said, you didn't have a lineage and you were beginning to see a lot of people that were kind of there for the money or they were very tunnel visioned in some ways. And you had met with Patrick and Patrick said something to you that blew you away and it blew me away when I read the book and it was you don't worship the same gods as them.
1: <laughs> yeah well, and look, I mean, uh, what just happened in Denver, Colorado, that twelve thousand person cult church service, um there it is. I do not worship that God, you know it's like again, Patrick saw what was coming, you know, whether it was through the mushrooms or his own practice. He warned all of those researchers ten years ago, if you don't focus on. These indigenous practices, if you don't ask your elders, if you don't understand the rituals, this is going to get away from you and there's going to be harm. He warned them 10 years ago and now they would think they've succeeded. Like, right? They they win. They're right. But you're not right. You know, it's like it's coming. And thank God for those protesters at the very end. I don't know if you were paying attention, but these indigenous folks with drumming and chanting and screaming interrupted the final speech at Mm this psychedelic science conference. And one thing this one man said, he said, just like with tobacco and coca and opium, he said these drugs were on our side because we respected them. We used them as medicine, Mm. we used the ritual, but then they turned on us because we abused them. And we decided how we were gonna use these drugs to get high and get rich. And he said, do Mm. not be surprised if these medicines turn on you just like those other medicines did. So there's nothing special about tobacco or mushrooms. It's just that without the relationship and the ritual, it's, you know, the human being can't dance in that space without help. You know, it's like, we can't yeah. just own the space.
0: Yeah, that's, that's well said. I didn't, I, I'll look into that. I didn't, I didn't see that part. I didn't, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to exactly what was going on there, but it makes sense when you start reading some of the new studies that are coming out where they're trying to take the, you know, the difficult part out of the trip and just leave behind like the attenuation of, a, you know, it's like, what What are you guys talking about?
1: Right. But it makes sense. Right. So um, someone asked me recently, they're like, all right, so you know that you went, quote, insane for seven or eight months in 2012 as a result of meditating. I said, yeah. They said, so is that a, is that a risk? I said, you mean psychosis? Like, I don't know, what's the alternative risk, like mm. being a workaholic, binge streaking, dying of liver disease or cancer at 60, you know? So it's interesting how our culture has said, this form of numbing out and abusing your body is okay, but this other form of challenge is not okay. And so yeah. when I hear that they wanna come up with non-psychedelic, psychedelic drugs to cure people, all I hear is like another way for, to numb people out. Another yeah. way to keep people from feeling what they're feeling so that they go to work every morning and they don't take more than a day off when their loved one dies and they just keep the system. It was actually Terrence McKenna who said this. Capitalism is a god. And it's, um, what's the term, a moloch? Like mm. a god that takes and takes right. and takes. It demands sacrifices. So we are worshiping a kind of god collectively now and yeah. it's a god of money. And again, it's like, I I know that those words sound really radical to some people, but I've I've been in the world of money. I can see its power. I can see how people worship it. It does a lot for you. But, you know, it's like, what's that transaction? And Mm. would you rather be working with the mushrooms instead or like working with a God that actually cares about you a little bit (laughs) or is going to kind of help you along? The money God is not going to do that.
0: Yeah, and it there there's a discount rate on that money, God. Like the older you get, the more you realize the less it's worth. No matter how much you have of it, you're like, I can't spend all this. Oh my God, I've this fuck God took everything from me. My my wife, my kid, right? Like it, it's worth less. And and I so so here's a question. Is it a psychosis that you went through? Or is it breaking out of the world and understanding, holy crap, I've been lying to my whole life. Everybody I know well, has lied to me. Well, I, I think it's I think it's the
1: latter. But when I remember when Roland was presenting his psilocybin findings in the psych department, the psychiatry department, and this um, one of the old school psychiatrists said, "We used to have people showing up here with cosmic consciousness." In quotes, he said, "No, it's mania, it's psychosis, it's grandiose delusions." So when I use the word psychosis, I'm purposely using the language mm. of that capitalist system. So that people understand, like, I'm not, I'm not putting rose colored glasses on this. Like what I went through was terrifying. And there were times, I mean, if I had had to be a mom during that year, it would have been really scary. I would have lost my children Mm -hmm. probably. They would have had to go live with somebody else. Like I would have been impatient in a hospital, but instead it was just me. So I could just keep letting go and doing that practice the way that my meditation teacher taught me. But, you know, most people don't want to wake up that way. Right. You know, it's like you do have to play with fire for a certain amount of time until you can walk across the coals, and you can't, wow. you cannot prepare yes. someone for what that fire is going to look like to them. Right. So for another person, it might look like, um, like a good friend of mine who's an elder. He said, when he was in his either 40s or 50s, he was wealthy. He was traveling the world, going to parties. He had life, and then one thing after another right. took all of his financial wealth away from him so to him that was death i think to me like losing my mind was death so it's like for Mm -hmm. each person you get the form of break that will make you make that shift (laughs) or succumb to you know being totally without a home on the street or being you know mentally ill because that's how we we don't take care of people when they go through that you know those are the kind of two examples um I don't know. I mean, I guess if you were living in a village where people are like, oh yes, this happens sometimes. And that's her year to go through this. So we're just mm-hmm. going to make sure someone takes care of her and takes care of her family. And she'll eventually get through it. Um, but I felt that maybe the the actual perceived risk of it to me made me want to get through it faster. Like it wasn't comfortable. Mm. I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah.
0: yeah on some level, do you think that it was necessary? Like, I mean, was it one of the, it seems like I can see how it would be one of the biggest life-changing growth experiences in your life.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I talk about it a little bit in the book, but the thing that I want to kind of clarify here is that the year leading up to that annihilation experience, Mm. Um, I really was overworking myself. I really was, I was working through sickness, my back was killing me every day. Um, I really believed that if I got enough papers published in certain journals, that I would finally have value, like I would have a rise. Mm. Like I had fully committed to that totally fabricated materialist reality. And so was it necessary? I mean, some people don't have the break. They just keep succeeding and right. succeeding. I don't know. I mean, if we track some of these people, what does it look like when they're on their deathbed? I
2: sad. mean, you know,
1: I, my, the closest example I have is my dad. But at least he mm. woke up maybe five years before he died because he lost his daughter. You know, he got cancer. So thank God he had five years to wake up. You know what does it look like if you just push the thing all the way to the very end and then you're on your deathbed and you're like oh shit. You know so I I'm happy it happened like thank god.
2: Yeah. yeah. I don't
1: know what the alternative would have been like and you know I I probably would have been at that huge conference in Denver thinking I had made it and still feeling yeah. like that pit in my stomach like what's missing? What did I what did I miss?
0: You might have you might have just taken over for Roland Griffith. I mean,
1: yeah, so (laughs) isn't that fascinating? I mean, like right now, and that's also the synchronicity of it, that um, my book is coming out the same season, the same summer, that my mentor is probably going to die. I mean, he's been Mm -hmm. dying for the last year. And the person that I hired to take over for me is now taking over for him. (laughs) So I literally extricated myself from the legacy. You know, it's like the Kingly progression was there. And I was just like, whoop. But like, yeah. I'm just going to like surgically extract myself and like replace myself with the, with the next in line.
0: It's like Krishnamurti in some ways. You see the spiritual angles right there. You know what I mean? It's, it's so interesting to get to read. First off, thanks for being so honest in the book. I, it's probably hard to be pretty vulnerable at times to put yourself out there. But it's a fascinating relationship you had with your dad and to see some of the traits in yourself and to see your father, who was this very successful corporate lawyer, and then for you to be so honest about how you see the world of corporations. like That's a very, fa- a lot of moving parts in there.
1: Yeah. No, and I, you know, the, the interesting thing too about my dad, and I, I touched on this a little bit, but, you know, he was a rebel when he was a teenager and in his 20s. He was more like my sister. It was like he was like my sister and me mixed together. And he did his on the road thing. He did his hippie traveling You know hitchhiking across the country thing he did probably who knows how much acid he listened to the (laughs) grateful dead so in a way i think my um my battle with capitalism is still his battle it's Mm. like he just kind of passed the torch and in a way it's like he was actually quite a a genius about it it's like here's a system we can't beat so i'm gonna win in the system And then pass the torch to the next person who they might get a chance to beat the system, you know? So if he had just done, you know, fuck all at 22, I wouldn't get this opportunity to now tell the whole world about the very thing that he also knew the secret of, this psychedelic secret. And it's it's an open secret now, you know, but it's interesting when you look back over generations and the people who came before did what they had to or could to kind of pass that torch. Mm so that now I can write a book like this that's so vulnerable and will actually be read and not just like a weird cult, you know, like, oh, that's so strange, like what's she up to? But um, yeah, I mean, my dad thrived in the corporate world. He loved it, you know, and so did my sister. So I don't knock people whose lives feel really good in that space. You know, I just kind of want them to remember that it's just, it's a bit of a charade, like mm. enjoy the circus be a good trapeze performer, but like you're still performing. Like, and just remember you can set it aside anytime you want and just step away. That's all.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think that's hard for a lot of people. And I think psychedelics offer you a quick, you know, water break, if you will, because it's so easy to become your identity. I am George, the, Corporate attorney. I am George the truck driver. I am George the stay-at-home dad. Like I'm, you know, I'm I'm all these things. But we get so caught up in that identity, we really forget about all our other connections.
1: Right. No, I mean people are surprised when they meet me, and they're like, "Oh, you ran track." Yeah. I was like, "Yeah, I was an athlete," and they're like, "That's interesting. Like, you're also a psychedelic person and an academic <laughs> and a mom." And I'm like, "Yeah." I actually like at my root, I identify the most with being an athlete. And, you know, so it's just, you know, what, um, is it Walt Whitman? I contain multitudes, mm, yeah. you know, so it's like, in a way it's like, I think psychedelics help all of us feel at, at peace with all of ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we may, we may still choose what self we want to be kind of running the show for a period of time, but you know, the other cells don't go away. They're just kind of like in the background. And yeah. so that self who was really struggling for a lot of years I mean she's still there you know maybe given the right circumstances or wrong circumstances she'll come back again and be like oh my god life sucks you know i don't want to be here and i'll be like hey i remember you we went through this before it'll 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 pass like you know and then kind of that balancing act but um i think to most people who just know that they have one identity and they like go to work and they take care of their family and they, you know, they have a bank account and savings. Mm-hmm. This can sound really scary. It's like it yeah. sounds schizophrenic. Like, what do you mean I have yeah. other selves? I don't want other selves.
0: <laughs> yeah. What if they're crazy? You know?
1: <laughs> what if they yeah. tell me to quit my job? You know, um, the study coordinator at Hopkins just told me recently that we had a really funny back and forth where she said there was a chemical weapons developer, like a young guy who was on a study back when I was there and he just finished his um, his PhD, but in like yeah. another area. And I said, oh, I remember that guy. Didn't he also teach yoga in Thailand? And she goes, no, no, no. There were two weapons manufacturing <laughs> people who, we, who the mushroom successfully told them to leave their job. So it's like, awesome. we are joking. I was like, two for two. We got two people out of the Department of Defense after psilocybin. And again, that's what the government is worried about. They don't want all these young people realizing, like, hmm, I could teach yoga. I could, mm-hmm. you know, like learn about philosophy. Like, I don't want to go figure out how to kill people.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there's tons of papers about how to weaponize psychedelics to have people get rid of fear, so they can just go murder more people. You know, or hey, get in the machine over here. Come on in. It's it's the new one. You know, it's you know what it brings. Oh, me that's to this such other
1: an place. interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's such yeah. an interesting idea. Yeah, of course they will be used that way. Right.
0: Without of a doubt. Course.
1: And then we'll just have to wake up to that new brainwashing. It's like, it's always like the, um, yeah, like what's the move? Like what's the move of the system to try to make itself relevant? And so now it's like, oh shoot, we have to make ourselves relevant through psychedelics. So instead we'll come up with bots who like train people to, you know, say they're not depressed anymore, but not have any of the other insights.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Think about that. Like if you look at the way, like if you look at Denver, or you look at where all the money is, you know they're they're frantically trying to weaponize fragility in a way that's like okay you can use this but for mental health because you have a problem and you have to come and it's going to be twenty five thousand dollars and you can have this microdose and then you can have a Dr Pepper on the way out you know what I mean like it's like the 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 I don't know the McDonald's of transformation right right.
1: And, you know, it's like they, I think they tried to do that with mindfulness. And then the thing with mindfulness is like the uptake was so poor, you know, people are like, I don't even want to meditate 10 minutes a day. You know, it's like they couldn't get the (laughs) dose right to get people even to that level that it was going to, but, you know, with psychedelics, I think, I mean, I only have two major fears and I've kind of made peace with one of them, which is that everyone I talk to, friends, family, loved ones, whoever, I just say. Unless you absolutely have to and your life depends on it, do not walk into a psychedelic clinic. Do not give them any of your money. Do not give them any of your health data. Do not trust these strangers with your mind. Like find any other way possible that's still safe if you Mm -hmm. feel like you have to have this experience. So that's like, and yeah, I mean, people may think that that's irresponsible, but that's just where I stand. I think the risks are too great. And we can't even... You know, was it, it was Dick Cheney, the unknown, unknown. It's like, yeah. you don't even know the risk. So, and the <laughs> second part of it is, well, what if we run out of the drugs? And I haven't figured that part out. So I still sit with that fear of like, what happens if there's a day when the penalties against growing mushrooms are so steep that you have, the only way to have a psilocybin experience is to go into that clinic and how scary that would be. Like how dystopian. But I see it it coming. I don't know how soon, but I see a future where the underground accessibility of psychedelics is truly dangerous Mm. because of what people are risking and that they'll kind of funnel us all into that system. Um, And again, so I just say it out loud now so that people start thinking, like, what would an alternative look like? I mean, maybe the the earth won't even make it that long. At least humans on earth.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because when you say it like that, I think of Aldous Huxley and I think of like his his suite of creative memoirs that were left to us. And if you look at the way in which he wrote books, it's almost like he was writing them with his relationship with psychedelics, whether it was the perennial philosophy or leads to the doors of perception that leads to the uh, brave new world, which leads to the island. And I think we're on the cusp of that. Are, are we moving into brave new world or is can it be the island? You know, because there is a relationship with both of them. If we look at the world of production that wants to find ways to reward the alphas and the betas and the gammas. And then you have this other world like the island that he wrote where there's this kids are going at the age, you know, uh, I don't know, at, at 14. And they're going with a mentor to meditate at a church on a mountaintop and take psychedelics for the first time. You know, it's just it's almost like he kind of gave us like this choose your own adventure. You know, is that, I don't know. Do you think no, we're going to a me, brave
1: new world? Yeah, right. It makes me want to read both again, and especially the island because, in a way, so I live in Vermont, oh, and Vermont is a green oasis, kind of like an island, <laughs> and <laughs> oh, it it's is. one of the few places where, like, cannabis marketing never took hold because you can't have billboards. There's no highways. Nice. Um, you know, uh, they actually legalized grow your own first fully legalize it, not just decriminalize it. So
2: Beautiful.
1: we're actually, um, there are really good conversations happening right now with the state legislature about what would it look like to make mushrooms like cannabis? So we start with the home growth. People can grow it, they can share it, they can use it. And then once we've kind of seen how that goes and people are educated about it, then maybe we'll let like a handful of money-making enterprises set up shop, but not first. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I guess, I want Vermont to be like the island. Yeah. I want it to be like a refuge from the options that are available in New York, in Denver, in Oregon, who knows where. Um, is that utopian? It's utopian. That means it's, it's idealistic. It's a little bit um, unfathomable, but if it can happen anywhere, I think it's probably in a state like this where people are open-minded, but they're not, um, they're not like extremists. They're just kind of like, mm-hmm. everyone should be able to live the life they wanna live. And we have more trees than people. So like we can manage the risks. It's like, even if something bad happens, you know, you're at a, you're at your home and you're not going to run into another human being as soon as you step out of the door. You know, the, the possibilities for those kind of risky interactions are reduced.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting that we, we look at it from that angle. If we look at sort of the hotbeds at it. And that I think that ties another thing that ties into something else that Patrick said that I had to set the book down for a minute, and that was you can't commodify the sacred. Like that's I mean look what's happening. I mean, if you look at what happened to cannabis and if you look at even if you do attempt to do commodify the sacred, then we we run into what the protesters were saying about yeah, you're gonna abuse those, they're gonna abuse you back. It's a powerful statement right.
1: though. Like the tobacco. So right, you know, I've <clears throat> tobacco as I talk about in the book. It's actually funny. It's like one of the, it was one of the harder things to be vulnerable about because our culture is so, this is a stigma around cigarettes, you know?
0: How dare you smoke cigarettes? I know, right?
1: (laughs) And, you know, there, and like also how strange that tobacco as a medicine was reaching out to me from the time I was a child through Mm. my dad, you know, it was like this thing that said, hey, I'm here. I'm going to pacify the monster for a little bit. And like, everyone's going to chill out. You're going to have a fun time. I mean that was the spirit of tobacco. It was a sacred presence in my life. And if I had just bought the like, capitalist propaganda about like cigarettes are going to kill you. It's like, well they might. But also the spirit of tobacco, I can ask for its help. And toward the end, you know, I was like asking that spirit. I said, "Is it possible? Can we still have a relationship if I'm not smoking cigarettes and the, and the tobacco was like, "I don't know." Like <laughs> I don't know if that works. Like it hadn't considered it before. So again, it's like I see that there is a way to still have relationship with these old spirits and call them what you want. I, I use the word spirit. I know that sounds like foolish to some people, but, um, you know, the essence of something, you know, if you imagine like, what's the essence of water before we mm. were putting all this chlorine into it? Or like, what's the yeah. essence of the air before we were polluting it? Like, can we still find that and ask it questions? I think we can. Um, yeah. yeah, tobacco, Yeah, it was, it was commodified and it started killing people. But if you ask, you know, my friends in Nepal, like their elder elders are not dying of lung cancer from being around smoke all the time. How does that work? How are they not getting lung cancer? It's not just about organic, you know, organic material. There's something else going on there.
0: Yeah, I, I have a. I'm so stoked to live in Hawaii because like everything grows here and I have like the most beautiful garden with some of the most beautiful friends I've ever met. And I sit and I talk to them, and I I found that I can grow a a certain type of tobacco and just chew the leaves. And it's just like, all of a sudden I got this clear conscious and I'm talking to myself and my kids like, who are you talking to dad? I'm like, Oh, I'm talking to tobacco over here, you know? And, but it's amazing. The relationship that you can build with the plants in your environment when you start growing them and, I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but I, I love those. No, it's not a
1: tangent at all. And I do I do feel like maybe one of the undercurrents of the book is also how we like shame people for the yeah. drugs they choose. And
0: Thank
1: how you. I I forget if I actually included this scene in the last book. I don't think I in the last version of it, but there was a scene in the hospital where my dad had just come out of uh, the first brain surgery. And these like really asshole doctors were like asking him how many cigarettes he'd smoked in his life or like how many years he smoked and i'm like enough the man has brain cancer he smoked enough why do you need to make him feel ashamed right now and have to say out loud 45 fucking years or whatever it was and i just i feel like that's also where i get very defensive it's like you know if someone wants to smoke cigarettes their whole life and die of lung cancer Mm -hmm. so be it you know and was it better that he also was able to quit for some amount of time at the end? Yeah. That was beneficial to the people around him, but none of this like shaming people about their, the drugs that helped them, you know, cause we don't, we assume the alternative is better. But as I say in the book, it's like maybe he needed to be less angry at the end. And if he could have just smoked a little bit, he would have been less angry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, it reminds me of, in a lot of ways your book is like a love story you know you you talk a lot about your relationship with your sister your relationship with your dad and you know i i love like what you just said right now reminds me of the towards the end of the book where like your dad gets up and walks out and is like yeah, i'm not gonna do this anymore you know <laughs> like it was such like a rock star move like you just walk off stage but like it's 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 just like you tell those doctors fuck off you're not gonna answer that like I love that spirit that, that is hiding in so many people. And I think that that is the love for ourselves that allows us to stand up and just say what's on our goddamn mind. No, I'm not gonna do it. This is wrong, right. I'm walking away. There's something so beautiful about that.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I love that you also said rock star because it's like my dad had that, you know, being a trial lawyer, but also yeah. being in theater and an actor and a musician, like he literally couldn't walk that day but he mm. managed to pull this off and like literally walk out the room. And, and I, I think that for, you know, for a lot of people, oh, I'm about to say something a little bit strange. <laughs> the, the younger that you die, the more you're able to die as yourself
2: mm. for
1: a lot of people. And what I would love is that people get longer, healthier lives and they still get to die as themselves. True mm. to themselves, not a shell of themselves, not a placated, numbed out, you know, apologetic, shame, ashamed person who yeah. is like, oh, well, gold star, I made it to 90, but I'm fucking miserable. And like, I don't know who I even was 20 years ago. So, you know, it's a controversial idea, but like, how can we find that balance for people where they can live the life they want in as healthy and awesome way as they can, and then they don't live any more than they need to into yeah. those years that they may be losing who they are. Um and I mean, you can imagine where my mind is going, but like, as, as you can imagine, I'm a fan of euthanasia. Like it doesn't scare me yeah. at all, but that's like about choice. I think that people, agree. we all get one life for sure. We might get yeah. more, but we definitely get one.
0: Yeah. It's so, I, I'm not even profane is not even the right word, but we take the dignity out of dying. In some ways we commodify the end of life so that you can put someone on a machine and they're just You know, I I watched my my great grandma, my grandma, just not even there. Just they were just they were alive because of a machine and they were alive for a year or two years because of that. It's like, what the fuck are we doing? Like this is this is morbid. Like this is ridiculous. You know, it's it's crazy to think about that.
1: Right. And you've got you've got very Mm -hmm. religious and very well intentioned people on the side of extending life. Mm -hmm. And then once but once you've seen it up close, you're like, this is not this it's not is not life. a kind thing to right. do. This is not a loving thing to do. This is it's not selfish. like a, a godly thing to do. Yeah, it's selfish. And, you know, I forget if I had this price tag in the book, but it was my sister's insurance spent $10,000 a day while she was in the ICU. And it wasn't quite, it wasn't $10,000 a day for my dad to stay at home. It was less than that. It was still expensive. But couldn't we just get... The insurance companies to realize that they can get paid just as much for people to be at home having an awesome death than to be stuck in a hospital not until we make the hospital less profitable right it's like as soon as as, as long as the hospital is the place where they're going to make the most money off your body right. that's where people are going to stay and that's where they're going to die unless you have the i mean the antics i pulled to get my dad out of the hospital as a 66 year old man with you know, terminal brain cancer, right? Why was I fighting the doctors to bring him home? It's absurd. And I think that until you've gone through it, people think, oh, like, I have my, um, you know, I have my living will, I have my health advocate, like, good luck, you have to Mm -hmm. go to battle with these systems to get what you want.
0: Yeah, it's, it's another great part of the book. You know, I, I think that you at least for me, and I think that anybody else will read it. Like, I'm so stoked that I got to read not only what you did, but the advice you got from your friend about how to get the palliative care. Like, that's a, a beautiful gem that you've given to people right there. Thank you for that. That's, I'm like, that's not the, the kind first of stuff person that's in there.
1: to have been told that, but maybe I'm the right? first person to have told everybody else. I mean, that's the thing. I, my friends like to joke, they're like, it's not even like you're saying anything new, you're just saying it. And people are like, how dare you just say this thing out loud? It's like, well, sorry, I don't believe in secrets. Like, you know, as soon as I learned something, and a friend of mine was the one who had to tell me. Not the doctors, not anyone in the hospital. And, you know, you talked about the humor in the beginning, but that was a very humorous (laughs) moment, right? It's like, she, you know, my sister wanted, she said very clearly, why am I still alive? What the fuck is going on? This is torture. Can you just kill me already like yeah you know in in not so many words and then once we realized there was a way for her to die quicker and without as much pain she was like come on then like yeah either save my life or like end the misery you know and so once we figured that out and i talk about it in the book how it was me and her husband who was a football coach like a football play you know it's like (laughs) you know the nurse would come in and be and she'd be like oh how is she and you don't say fine you say well, she seems like she's struggling to breathe a little bit, or she looks like she's in pain, and then they up the morphine. And as long as you play the game, they will up the morphine because they it's and is they know what's going on. Right, but it's like the whole system has to pretend that we're not actively killing people or actively trying to prevent, you know, a torturous death. It's like. So it was just interesting for me to kind of be playing that game. And then I say at one point, my dad was in the room and he said, Oh, she's fine. And we're like, no, (laughs) not fine. Like that's not what we're doing here, Richard, you know, but um, on the flip side of that, my dad didn't need any pain medication at all. It's really interesting. Once he was home and he had what he needed and wanted, he didn't have pain. So Mm. isn't that fascinating? My sister needed an overdose of morphine to survive. the the pain of the ICU, but my dad needed barely like a tiniest little liquid morphine under his tongue at the end. And so that I think speaks to what pain is really about. Mm
0: -hmm. I think
1: pain is fear. Like pain is real, but pain is also magnified by fear.
0: Sure. You know, something you're, uh, I mean this in the most possible respectful way, but was it something like this? I know. That's so cool. Thank thank you for that. That's yeah. really cool. <laughs> if you want to know what yeah. we're talking about, I got to read the book, everybody. Okay, that's that's <laughs> in there. Just want everybody to know about it. You know, it's, it's super cool. There was another part where I, um h- here's something maybe we can do together on the podcast. For anybody watching this podcast or listening to this podcast, Dr. Catherine has taped up a fortune cookie fortune somewhere on a mushroom statue. If anybody can show that to us, I'll send them an ounce of mushrooms as soon as they show me proof of it. You think anyone's ever going to find that particular fortune cookie mounted up uh, under that statue?
1: I mean, it would take someone who still has access to the Hopkins
0: Concession Room. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, if you have access, find <laughs> that mushroom statue and look for that particular fortune. It's going to be a good trip or something along those lines, right? Yeah, you will have you will have a pleasant trip. <laughs> That's such an awesome story. There's so many, and and for those watching or listening to this, there's so many of these, these little, like, Easter eggs that are in there where you just sit the book down, start laughing, and be like, "Man, I wish I was smoking a fat joint with Dr. Catherine right now and talking about all this stuff because this is awesome." You know, it's. it's I mean, I had
1: I had a blast. I mean, you know, it's once you're, it's like any trip, right? Like once you're on the other side of it, it's all great and funny. And so if you interviewed me, you know, at the, at the bottom of the, you know, trough of 2018, you know, when I talk about like in the, in the immunity chapter, like literally like every single thing the universe could throw at me. And I was like, Mm -hmm. you gotta be kidding me. How bad can this get? And then to come out of that, I think is like a trip, you know, it's like you reach that point where you're like it as, as Bill Richards used to say, like you throw the boomerang And when you're at the very farthest point, you're like, I'm, I'm toast. I'm out of here. Like, I'm never coming back. This is it. And then, and then it starts to curve back around. (laughs) And so I've written the book like that, but my life did also follow that arc. You know, it's like just a narrative, um, method I use, you know, we, it really did go as far as possible beyond what I could have imagined to come back around and to find myself kind of like, here I am. At home living a normal life as a mom with two little kids. You know, it's like things are pretty normal now. Um, it doesn't mean that I didn't go on the the hero, the heroine or hero's yeah, journey. Yeah. Um, but it's all kind of like a a very happy, distant memory now. And even better so that I've written it down so that I don't forget it.
0: <laughs> well, even better you wrote written it down so you can share it you know, sometimes I think at certain points of our life, and I love the idea of the boomerang, I've never heard that before. But, you know, at some point in time, our actions become our stories. And the stories are told by the elders, sometimes in training, so that they can become guideposts, or they can become the light that guides the way for the next boomerang, or for the the technique to throw the boomerang, you know, so I I get goosebumps. Have you thought about that transition? Like, Hey, you—you you are on this other swing now. Now you're kind of becoming the elder. You're becoming the storyteller. What, how do you feel about that?
1: I mean, it feels great. I don't. I—I I think that the only thing I've told people is I'm not going to sit for people until I'm much older. You know, it's like mm. I'm very happy. Right. Uh, I have what's called. A, you know, people talk about FOMO, fear of missing yeah, out. Yeah, I have. Yeah. I have LOMO, love of missing out. <laughs> like,
2: That's so awesome.
1: I, when people come to me and they're like, "How? How can I?" How can I get to where you are? And it's like, well, that's why I wrote the book, not so that you could do what I did, right. but you could see that there is an alternate model. Mm. And no one in these clinics is going to tell you this is going to take 10 years to integrate. No one is going to be honest with you. So at least my book is saying that. It can take 10 years. You know, and I was 30 when I first started asking these hard questions. Mm. So really it was 40 years. You know, and it's like if yeah. people can start asking these questions when in a safe way, in a, in whatever, like, you know, guided and careful way they can at a younger age, instead of recreationally binging on all these drugs, you know, mm-hmm. at 20, it's like start in a very intentional way. Then, then maybe you get to have a great life starting at 25. You know, it's like, I don't think, I think it, it would be too much to ask for mm-hmm. our culture to give people great childhood and teenage years. I hate to say it. It's like, mm-hmm. our culture so messed up, but it's like, yeah. Once you're out of the house and you can start thinking for yourself, kind of college years, I think that's when I would love for people to pick up my book, read it, and be like, oh, there's a different method here. There's a different way of approaching my life. And I don't have to wait until I'm older to kind of turn that switch.
0: Yeah, I love that. I, and I'm hopeful that the same thing can happen. I, you know, It brings up a question, though doesn't it seem like all the tragedies in our life are forcing us to ask these difficult questions. And when you ignore them, the tragedies seem to get worse. You ever thought about it from that angle?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, mine definitely did. Um, (laughs) you know, but I have, I have met people and they do exist that don't have tragedy in their life. It does. It's true. I don't know. Is that true? Yeah, no. Some people have very like kind of steady lives. Um, and you know, like good for them. Like I, again, I kind of, um, I'm not so sure about other lives. I believe I'm going to continue on in some form. I'm pretty sure I've had other lives before this one, Mm -hmm. but in, at least in Buddhism, they would say, sometimes you just have one of those like softball life events, Mm. you know, it's just like, you're just here and you're living. And it's not the lifetime where you're going to get enlightened or try psychedelics or, you know, have all of the tragedies that you have to, navigate maybe this is just the like cruise
2: mm.
1: and so if you're in a if you're in a life and you're cruising and everything's great don't take mushrooms like god please just don't there's no need you know it's like really i mean these medicines are like you, you know if you need them mm-hmm. and there's no need to just create disruption and chaos in your life just to try something out
0: yeah that's interesting to to see it from that angle and, and, and take a step back like that. Yeah. You know, sometimes when I, when we talk about tragedies and psychedelics, you know, I, I was, it's interesting how sometimes it allows you to create this new understanding or relationship with like the divine. And it seemed to me, throughout the book, like your sister was still like, you were still having a full relationship with your sister. Like when you go to London and all of a sudden there's the Rebecca house, like, I don't believe in coincidences like that. Like that's, that's something bigger than we have language for. Right.
1: Yeah. There was the Rebecca house. Um, you know, she appeared to be in this particular way in the hospital. Um, I mean, it's kind of like a, it's one of the earliest reveals of the book, but you know, mm-hmm. the, the picture of Ganesh is on the cover all right? and the, not only Ganesh, but the symbol of the elephant kept appearing and it still appears for me in my life. It appeared on that meditation retreat Mm. shortly before my dad got, um, shortly before his lung cancer spread to his brain, he went to Africa and like went to an elephant sanctuary. Mm. And he said it was the first time on the plane ride to Kenya that he had a dream of my sister. like so she hadn't visited him at all but like she was like okay like I see you putting in the effort now I see Uh, you stepping out of your comfort zone so like okay I'm gonna show up and at some point and I I do think I edited this out because I didn't want to freak people out but I said at some point like the ancestors demand sacrifices and I didn't mean like actual sacrifices but like they want to test you and see like are you serious about this like you can't just like call me from this existence that I'm in to like come help you for any stupid little reason but like Mm -hmm. if I see that you're really putting in the effort. Okay, I'll show up. And the one time that happened was um, the middle chapter said I I actually love it. It's called happy happy. And it's about the, it's a, it's the, it's the one where my husband is depressed and he's trying to cure his depression and I'm smoking all these cigarettes and out of nowhere, you know, my dad comes as like, you know, the savior. And it was that wake up moment of like, oh, look at us. Like, we're just like struggling imperfect people too. And like, here's this guy who's going to come help. But at the end of that chapter, the part that I edited out was the night after I got back to my dad's house with my daughter. And I was like, oh, I survived. I had the most brilliant dream of my sister. And Mm. she was in this like spaceship hovering over Manhattan, over the East River. And she had invited me into her like cosmic living room. And I was like, whoa, is this how you're like hanging out now? This is amazing. (laughs) And she was like, yeah, you like my (laughs) digs? And so that happened after that horrendous experience of just like, I don't think I'm gonna survive this, Mm -hmm. like another low point. And so in a way, I feel like my sister would show up like after she saw that I was like, had made it through and she's like, all right, I'm going to reward that.
2: Mm-hmm. Like now
1: we get to hang out for like five, five minutes, you know? And it happened a few other times in the book that I did leave in the book. And so I hope people, I hope people appreciate it. And you know, if they think I just have a wild imagination, great. But like, I can tell you, man, this stuff is real. Like I hope it starts happening to people once they read the book. So that they just like tune the frequency a little bit different.
0: I like that idea of tuning the frequency different. I, you know, there's, I think that most people who had a really tender relationship with someone they love or that loved them, they have felt or seen things that are just completely unexplainable. And sometimes it's just a feeling, you know, and it, it, that's enough, though, for you to fundamentally change your relationship with spirituality or you know whatever you want to call it. It's it's interesting. Do, was it? was there a fundamental shift after you lost your sister with like your relationship with spirituality after you lost your sister? And then after you lost your dad, did one prepare you for the other or did one deepen the other? Did anything change there? Well, you know, right
1: after my sister died, I remember my dad said something very st- Oh, Cause he got lung cancer within a, a year, year and a half. It was probably just about a year after she died. And I remember him saying to me, at least she showed me how to do it. Right. And I, in a way, it was like kind of a shocking thing to say, because I was at that point, at least still like furious with him. You know, I was still blaming him for everything. And I was like, it's your fucking genes that killed her. You know, as if like, you know, that was his choice? I mean, I want the reader to appreciate how immature and rageful I was, you know, but when he said at least she showed me how to do it. I remember going to Patrick and saying like, my dad's such an asshole. Like he's using Rebecca's death as like a guidebook, you know, like that's the most selfish thing ever. And Patrick's like, who did he say that to? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, who did he say she showed me how to do it? I was like, me. He's like, right, who guided your sister through death? And I was like, oh, me. He's like, yeah, so like in your dad's like limited way, he's like, can you help me do this? Like he can't ask for help. So instead he's like saying it as a statement. Um, So uh, yeah, so I think, I forget where we were going with this, but you know, did it prepare me? Yes. And then at the, the, what I'm looking toward now is even more mysterious, right? Because like clearly those two deaths prepared me for my own death. Mm. And I feel like it's like a long ways off, but my question now is like, okay universe, What am I here to do? Like, how am I going to use what they taught me to not just live a happy life and then die a good death? I know how to do that. Like, I've got it, you know, but what can I do in the interim? Um, And especially with my dad, I regretted I wasn't there when he died. And so I kind of look at that question at the end is like, do you have to be with the person? What's different Mm. when you're with the person? And we can convince ourselves it doesn't matter, but like, if you're the one dying, it does matter who's there. And so if you have the opportunity to be there for your, for your loved one, go be there. Don't, mm-hmm. don't think you're going to get back in time. Don't think, you know, it doesn't matter because they're already on the other side. Like the, the real thing I felt at the end was an affirmation. That's like, it mattered that I was with my sister mm-hmm. and it felt like my dad was saying like, don't underestimate how important it is. but you know, what's happening around the dying person. You know, don't like, don't reduce that to something like, oh, they'll be fine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's so, you know, I was speaking with a death doula not too long ago, and she was telling me something similar where she had found herself in hospice care and holding the hands of people who were taking their last breath. And sometimes in that last breath, she could see like their unrealized dreams. And that last moment was, was, it was like a psychedelic time dilation where, you know, a minute seemed like an hour, but some of the insights that she got from just sitting with these people, I was like, maybe cry. I was like, Oh my gosh. It's, and then it just brings it all back when you start talking about, you know, especially I've read the book. So I, you know, I, I know the last conversation that happened and then I know what your friend told you later, like, look at these, you know, look at all these things. And so it's interesting to get to hear your voice after reading that and see your reflection. And that, that's why I'd asked the question about spirituality. And I think right. it's important to note too, that, one of the first thoughts you had after your sister passed away is that you're here to help people die.
1: Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, I have, <laughs> I've tried. So I tried to volunteer for hospice. Every time I kept trying to put myself out there, death, death kept kind of being like, like, let's, let's focus on your, your first relationship with, mm. with, with, with your own relationship to death. Mm -hmm. and then you can go practice this with other people so in a way i feel like death was also a guide and kept showing me like if you haven't and i don't i mean there i'm sure there are very like lovely uh palliative care doctors Mm -hmm. and death doulas who are in their 20s but Mm. i feel like when you're dying you can smell the bullshit it's like you can tell when someone is just phoning it in or doing a job and it's like you want someone with you who knows that space of death so I want to know that someone has lost someone. I want to know that they've survived something really hard. I want to
2: mm.
1: know and feel in that moment that authentically they understand the precipice that you're on. And so in a way, I feel like I tried to jump the gun a bit, like yeah. with the psychedelic hospice in the Isle of Man or like, mm-hmm. oh, well, I, this is my ticket. I'm going to be a guide. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. It's like, what about, I'm still afraid of death. And if I'm still afraid, how am I going to help other people? Because they're going to feel that on me. Yeah. And that's the worst thing in the world. Can you imagine being in the room with someone who's afraid of death? Yeah. And you're like, I'm doing this and you're making me scared about it, you know? So, <laughs> um, no, it's changed my spirituality a little bit, I think for the better. So I think I used to have a very like outward directive, like what can I do to help other people? And right now I'm in a space that it's like, it's okay to kind of take care of myself and my like very small circle. And that that too is preparing me to do this, great work in the world um and obviously i didn't just sit back i wrote a fucking book you know so it's like i wanted something to be out there to start teaching people but um yeah i mean i'm looking out at these trees now and it's like i hope a lot of people get to die looking at these trees i don't know when i don't know how but <laughs> why i got this land you know it's like not just for me to have a good death
0: right yeah it's how did Sometimes when we're when we're close to death that we see people that we love pass away it kind of brings like a new zest for life is that is that something that you felt too after i mean was that part of writing the book was that part of giving back was that part of helping their memories be born was it all of that
1: um i certainly think that my dad's death gave me an inspiration and an energy to get through what i call the labyrinth of writing the book um And it did almost kill me. I mean, there were, I mean, you could hear it in my voice now, but there were times in the past couple of years that I had pneumonia, I had bronchitis, I had all of this stuff related to the telling of this story. And so I think without that inspiration, it would have just been something that stayed on my laptop or stayed in a journal or never got published or maybe just published a few hundred copies and shared it with my friends. Um, And I know there are a lot of books out there and there are a lot of writers and I want people to understand that certain books take every single thing a writer has. And that's what Midnight Water was. And so, you know, if I never write another book again, I will die happy. Like that's the kind of piece of art this is. Um, and I hope to write more, but, um, yeah, I think a lot of times I called on my dad and was like, you, first of all, you've initiated me into this labyrinth in so many ways that the reader will get to learn about when they read it. So like you now have to walk in and out of this labyrinth as many times as it takes for me to get out again. You know, so it's like I put him to work and I say that in the book, that it's like, it was hard for me to ask my dad for help in life or like admit that I needed his help. But once he was dead, I was like, all right, I'm putting you to work. You know, it's like, I need help. This person needs help. Come on, Richard, get on it. You know, you're you're a genius. You know how to get into a courtroom and make something happen. So like figure this out for this person. And he's he's pretty much always come through in very surprising ways. I can share some of the ways, but I don't know if people need to read the book to understand what kind of person he was. Like he's really a magic maker now that he's not in his body anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, sometimes it seems that, in in it, 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 it lends credence to, you know, that maybe we're here to become something different. You know, like I, prior to our conversation, we said, I was telling you that in Hawaii, we have this saying that says, we're all ancestors in training. Maybe you can't fully unlock all the magic you have inside of you or be able to relinquish the gifts you have to give to people until you live a full life and you move on to that next world, right?
1: Well, yeah. So if we think about that I mean being an ancestor is awesome that's what native people say they're like thank god like I want to I want to be an elder because that's one step closer to dancing in the stars you know and having that perspective which interestingly it kind of the book ends in that kind of ancestor space of death but it begins there too because the mushrooms were the first portal to at some point I described the mushroom altar and kind of feeling like I was like an ancestor in the stars looking down over like a whole galaxy that was the first time I saw that galaxy and just like that godly presence this was like oh like we can you know kind of go all the way out and look down back on this human life and say how how funny how silly how dramatic how theatrical like look at all this suffering look at all this stuff that they're trying to do. So the ancestor perspective is like, it's sweet.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is definitely sweet. I, you know, I I can't think. There's a poem that you, or more of a mantra that you said to yourself that was given to you by a Hawaiian friend of yours. Do you remember what that one was?
1: Ho'oponopono. Yeah. So in the Mama Bear chapter, there's a pretty out there section i actually when i went back to baltimore and just a small circle of people i read it to the folks in baltimore because i was like they're gonna get this it's pretty psychedelic but um i had heard it from there's a woman who um she was hawaiian and her legacy or like her lineage was of these um they're called navigators or something like people Mm -hmm. who could take these canoes out into the open ocean and like figure out where to go just based on the stars and the ocean Mm -hmm which itself is psychedelic, right? I mean, that's totally just, being in the middle of the ocean. Look like mapping the stars is the space of this mushroom altar. So if people want to understand like, what's the example on earth? That's it. And so she was talking about this prayer and that was in 2000, 2009. I had just graduated uh, with my PhD. So I had that prayer from 2009 and it didn't fully come into understanding until that, retreat which was 2017 right so quite a while i had to sit with that prayer but it had been given to me and you know in it is um i had turned the last phrase from please forgive me to i forgive you which is interesting right it's like i needed i really needed to forgive my dad before i could forgive myself before i could ask for forgiveness from other people you know, people now they're like, "Oh, well, you forgave your dad." You're like forgiveness should be easy. I was like, "No, no, no I did it once. <laughs> I'm, every single time you do it, it's hard." Like you know, just because I've done it once doesn't mean I could do it for all these other situations. Or asking forgiveness is also really hard. Um, but it took me into a very mystical place. That mm. um, uh, what is it's a uh, thank you, I love you, I'm sorry, please forgive me, or I forgive you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I still have not been to Hawaii, so maybe <laughs> maybe there's a mystical treasure waiting for me in Hawaii that was planted by that prayer.
0: I guarantee it. I guarantee <laughs> it. Just being here is like a mystical treasure. You know, when I when I walk outside and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful here. And when I read that, I was like, oh pff, she gets it. This girl gets it. You know, so I'm well, so Well, and so
1: interestingly too, and I don't talk about this very much in the book, but Ramdas mm. is like has these little cameos throughout the book. Right and in a way you know he he had that desire to create the first well it wasn't the first but he ended he would have created the third open air cremation site that was Mm -hmm. recognized by a u.s government and he couldn't make it happen in hawaii you know so he was he ended up being cremated in a normal you know retort just like my dad was and um Crestone is one of them. And at Shambhala Mountain Center, where I was a meditation researcher, I actually Mm -hmm. witnessed an open air cremation in America for the first time. And it, it, again, it blew my mind wide open. This was, there's something about these death rituals that itself is very enlightening. And I feel like it sounds crazy. Like only people like me and Ramdas would say, I want to have an open air cremation site. Mm. Like they're like, why are you trying to do this with your life? Like, what does it matter? it matters that people can see yeah. firsthand the transmission of consciousness that like the consciousness goes and then the breath and then all of the sensations and then the body, then it's, then the ash, then the smoke. So it's like to see that, I think heals that death wound.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So in a way I think for, you know, there is this lineage that, you know, Rondus ended up in Hawaii and couldn't quite get to that final, that final uh, finish line. But I was like, I told my brother, I was like, if I can figure out a way how to do open air cremation in Vermont, I'm going to do it. (laughs) You know, he's like, he's like, he's just blown right past psychedelics. You're like, well, what's the next extremely taboo (laughs) thing that no one here in America knows anything about?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it, it makes sense because if if you look at the way in which we treat death in the Western cultures, like the fact that we don't have an end of life rite of passage is scary in itself. The fact that we treat it that way. If you did have some sort of Ceremonial, you know, celebration at the end of life, like it would really go a long way with changing our relationship to it, right?
1: Right, it doesn't have to be open air cremation. I mean, that's right. just the example that I was introduced to through Buddhism and Hinduism. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you could be you could plant your loved one under a tree and like cultivate a forest, you know, you could mm-hmm. which. There are cool people doing out on the West coast now with this like recompose. They're like turning bodies into soil, which then grow trees, which is really cool. Um, But it's, you know, whatever is the opposite of embalming someone and putting them in a, in a material coffin Mm. that's gonna sit there and not rot.
2: Yeah. You know,
1: there are native cultures say that we're eliminating that whole cycle of life by not letting bodies go back into the earth, by not letting the transition happen all the way. And that's part of why we're so sick.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. If, I never thought about it from that angle, but yeah, it makes total sense too. If you just look at the way we're... Anyways, let me let me shift gears here a minute and talk about <laughs> like... <laughs> so I, I really admire the way in which you talk about your relationship with the different sorts of psychedelic substances. I'm reminded of Carlos Castaneda and how they talk about allies. And, you know, I... I had to set the book down when I got to the part of LSD where you're like, it's just too fucking long. It's just too goddamn long. It's like seven hours and another five hours. You know, <laughs> it's so it's so true. But I I really admire your relationship that you've built with the different sorts of, you know, substances out there that help you see different things. And in the book, you talk a little bit about how you you really have built up a great relationship with MDMA. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, like your relationships to the different substances.
1: Right. No, I mean, it feels like, um, as someone who felt somewhat alienated from her own culture and family, I kind of feel like they're my family members, Yeah, you know, and I kind of think about them each having a different character. I actually, now that you say that I was, I put LSD on the shelf a long time ago, but I hope, wait, you know, it's like, yeah, I, you know, I have two little kids and I've got a lot to do, so I don't have 12 hours to to (laughs) spend with that friend, but, um, You know, MDMA, it's so interesting because I didn't seek it out. Um, It found me at Dartmouth uh, as a college student. You know, Mm -hmm. I was probably 19 years old and some kid brought these little capsules up from, they weren't even hard pressed pills. They were pure Molly from New York City. Mm. And, you know, the magic of that, you know, some people will only ever get pure Molly in a clinic, most people. And it's like, go back in time. And it's like, you know, 23 years ago now that was available to me on the black market <laughs> because I was an idiot. I was just like, whatever. And like, put <laughs> it, you know, okay. um, it finally felt like my whole body was, was present.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like I wasn't trying to leave my body. I wasn't trying to like disconnect from sensations. It was like, finally, like all of Catherine is here. Mm-hmm. And I The only thing that's sad about that is like, wow, why didn't I get to experience being totally myself until I took a drug? So thank God it existed and also kind of sad, right? But um, the problem is that feeling of wholeness was so, it felt so good compared to the feeling of dissociation and brokenness and like, you know, hating myself and all the pain. But then I just was like, I'll just keep taking MDMA. Like yeah. I'll keep filling, I'll keep filling right. up that hole with MDMA and because of our biology. And I think also the spirit of MDMA, it's like, no, you can't, it won't work that way. Yeah. So again, that's the kind of co-on it's like, wait, how did this thing help me feel whole, but not keep making me feel whole. And early on in the book, I talk about um, that moment of realization where I had, you know, been binge drinking and taking all of the MDMA and cocaine, like anything else I could get my hands on in college right. and also taking care of that monkey that I was doing research with, and giving her ketamine because she had pain and she had a wound. And then finally, both of these things coming together and me realizing like, oh, I'm really messed up. Like I'm going to like my life is over if I keep just like blowing through this, you know, this experience and trying to not. Really look at what's happening, and so again MDMA went back on the shelf for a while. There was one experience I had at Burning Man, but um, within like two days of that experience, I just felt so depressed. And I I, I do want to take a minute and say, I know that Maps and Rick Doblin and all of these very well intentioned people don't believe that the come down is true. That they're like, oh, mm-hmm. this can do it creationally. It's really true for a lot of people, and we have to pay attention to that that like you need to really take care of yourself for the few days after MDMA. And if you have a really terrible day, just like remind yourself, like, this is what happens. My brain is building Mm -hmm. serotonin back up. I literally have no serotonin right now. It's very hard to function without serotonin. Um, There are ways to kind of mitigate that, but not to downplay it because, you know, it can can lead to suicide. It can lead to that kind of thinking. So anyway, fast forward. it was when my dad was pretty clearly dying of brain cancer but was kind of back in like a place where he was pretty healthy so we knew he was going to die but he was healthy currently and i was like well i'm freaking out now you know it's like the most powerful person in my life who's caused the most difficulty but has taught me so much is going to be gone soon like what am i going to do and that's when mdma like kind of like said hey
2: <laughs> i, remember
1: I me- can help with this yeah remember me <laughs> And I really had to trust that it wasn't just going to be like it was when I was a kid, like when I was a college student that maybe there. And, and how does that work? How does a drug exhaust itself and then yet come back into your life and still work?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, so I personally think that MDMA is just as sacred as mushrooms, um, as the indigenous healing medicines. I think that you know, LSD is a bit of a trickster. I think it has a sacred side and it has like a hedonism side. So I'll just again I'll I'll leave that for others to pontificate about. But I feel pretty strongly that MDMA is one of those sacred, sacred spirit entities that kind of came through our culture at a certain time. And it will heal a lot of people, but I just don't think it should be confined to a medical institution.
0: Yeah. It
2: wants
1: to be free. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's true it's it's interesting that you brought that up i was talking to a scientist from i think he was from berkeley and he he was telling me about like the blue monday study because i he had asked me oh george what do you think that after mdma that you feel bad i'm like absolutely like the next two or three days like i'm just all wrecked and he's like well, let me ask you this when you ingested mda did you do any other drugs or drink a lot of alcohol with him? Like, oh, yeah, I totally did all that. And he's like, "Well, don't you think that maybe if you had pure MvMA and you didn't have all these other substances that you wouldn't have that come down period? And I was like, I can't tell you because I've never done it that way. But well, you know see, I now, do
1: I can tell you, I can tell you, yeah. having done it all of the very irresponsible recreational sleep deprivation, <laughs> Only- not enough this yeah, it still happens even if you do everything okay. right, right, at least for me. And so, Here's another little. This is like a biohacking thing. So there's yeah. um, this thing called was it 365 DNA. You can find out all this information about your mm-hmm. genetics, but it doesn't go to some like mm. I don't know someone's like vault somewhere for them to like, <laughs> right. develop right. AI. But um, I learned that I have these two short serotonin alleles. Oh. And if you have if you have two long serotonin alleles, usually like you're not susceptible to mental health issues. You don't get addicted to substances. You're a happy person. You're happy. Good luck.y If you have one short allele, you have a greater chance. If you have two short alleles, you're like effed. Mm. So when I found that out about myself, I'm like, no wonder. Like I've been trying to make up this this right. deficit in serotonin my whole life. No wonder MDMA felt so good the first time mm-hmm. I took it because I was actually finally functioning. <laughs> and so what I would say to people is, if you want to be really smart about this, you can find out where your deficits and strengths are in your body, your history, like, I really want people to be scientists about their life. And so it's like, find out your risks are find out what medicine is going to fit the most with your genetics, your history, your trauma, your memories, you know, your family life, how you want to work in the world. And then they'll probably be the right medicine for you You just kind of have to do a little bit of of grunt work, you know, to get there. And certainly don't just, you know, because a doctor says, Oh, I heard MDMA is, available now you want to try it be like hey maybe i'm gonna have a really hard monday tuesday and if i've got five kids in the house like i want to take a vacation for a week instead of come right back right
0: Right. yeah there's something to be said about understanding the things that you're working with right like and it is a relationship it is like okay with this relationship i'm gonna be wrecked for like a couple days or with this relationship i need 14 hours you know it's it's right I think that there's something to be said about the person who builds that relationship at a young age. And for a lot of us, it starts off as recreational. But later, that recreational relationship turns into almost an optimization relationship. Where like, hey, if I have this, then I'm going to be able to get through that. And it's, in, in a weird way, it's kind of like dating in a marriage. Like you're when you find something you like, you go out on this date a little bit. You have this great time. Maybe it's a little irresponsible, but you had fun. And then later in life, you grow to love it in a different way, right? It's kind of crazy yeah. to think about.
1: No, I didn't like when you talk about the thing about elders and ancestors, like, I hope I get to an age where I'm still like, you know, interested in taking these things. And I have a lot more time on my hands Right, I just have these days where I'm like, hey, I haven't gotten to try 2CB in a long time. You know, does anyone, does anyone still make 2CB? Is that still available? (laughs) Can I try that? Which again, I found produced even a worse hangover headache than MDMA. Mm. And Mm. Sasha Shulk always said that 2CB and MDMA were two of his favorites. Mm. And it's interesting that like, he didn't talk about what it feels like afterward. And like, does it, did it not bug him or did he not get it? But like, for me, it's like, you couldn't pay me to have that kind of headache two days later again. Like, no, thank you.
0: (laughs) yeah, it's fascinating to think about. i I do hope that I'm curious, I'm curious to see how the relationship with your teaching and your writing goes on because i I think that while you're living this life now, we got to see like the first chapter, i, I maybe this is me being selfish but i see like at least a three volume set i see this one we have which was like the dr mclean like the the wild series here and then we're going to get to see the one where you are becoming the elder and then one where you know you have a whole different take on on what it means to be responsible with the relationships of life and how to get the juice out of them and stuff but yeah. Dr. McLean, this has been so much fun for me. I really, I, I, I crushed the book. I have all these notes. And even though you can't see in front of me, I got like eight pages of notes up there. I think we've been through maybe four of them. Everyone should go. Here's what the book looks like for anybody who's watching. It's a great book. Uh, Midnight water. You're never going to find an, another story that's as wild as this and beautiful as this. And, and you're going to set the book down and stare outside the window and laugh and, realize, Hey, I did that exact same thing. You know, it's, it's a wonderful book and I really admire the way you've, you've done it. Um, before I let you go though, would you be so kind as to tell people where they can find you, what you have coming up and what you're excited about?
1: Sure. Well, thank you for loving the book as much as I love it. Like, it's like, (laughs) I love it so much and I wish for everyone to experience it. Um, so uh, in a couple days, I am flying to the island of Bermuda where I wrote the book <laughs> and we'll be doing uh, the actual, the government of Bermuda through the national library has asked me to do a reading, which is huge. Nice. They're a very conservative culture. So they're like, even they're interested in psychedelics, which, are, which is good. Then on to London and London, as you know, from reading the book was kind of the <laughs> birthplace of a lot of these you know notions and interests and ideas they have a very thriving psychedelic uh theme there both research and recreational um and then i'll be happily back in vermont for most of the summer with my kids uh this fall i'm trying to get to new york city in october for um, a book reading but also with music and we're trying to give people the idea with some of these events is we want people to have like a little like not a deep dive, but like a moderate dive into midnight water. We want people Mm -hmm. to taste that psychedelic dream space, but not be overwhelmed. So like in a half hour, 45 minutes, you can get a taste of what this space is like sober. So that's in New York and probably California at the end of November. And then uh, if I survive all of that and I still have energy and my voice, I definitely have a second book and a third book that I want to write. And... I hope that they will be just as miraculous as Midnight Water. And I hope they don't <laughs> demand so much sacrifice from me. I hope they're just fun.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I think that without the sacrifice, you know, there can be no real elevation to the level it's at. And I, I think that that's because there was so much sacrifice and there's so much vulnerability and there's so much love in there that, you know, thanks to introducing the world to your sister and your dad, and your niece and everybody in there and your husband and your kids too. It was, it was really well done. And, um, I would recommend too that I, while it's a great read by itself, I've found that a light micro dose just really makes the pay, the, the letters just jump off the page. So just my opinion, just my opinion. So Dr. Catherine, I'm really thankful for this. It's been amazing. Is there anything else that you want to leave the people with before we go?
1: Well, I just, again, want to be kind of the voice of reason, despite my own choices. You know, we are about to be hit with a tidal wave of advertising, a tidal wave of influence, a tidal wave of options around psychedelics, both legal and extra legal. And just kind of educate yourself now, like be ready to be a smart consumer of this information that's coming at you. And, you know, tell your older relatives, tell your family members, make sure that you educate the people around you. So that then when they encounter this question for themselves, they know how how they want to answer it. They know the questions they want to ask in return and just, you know, be smart and be wise. These medicines have a lot to offer. And uh, you know, you also have snake oil salesmen offering the medicine alongside the snake oil. So gotta be a little bit one step ahead.
0: Yeah. Gosh, I, I wish we had more time. I I, I think it's such an Im- imperative part for people to understand that, with, with some of the things becoming legal and so many people, the certain demographic of boomers that are finding themselves at the end of the mortality experience, like it could be such a beautiful opportunity for people to have this tool in their toolkit. And we, we didn't really get to go into that as much as I wanted to, but you're right. People should be educated. Let's see,
1: on it. let's see what happens with some of these bills. Let's see what happens okay. if the FDA actually legalizes MDMA. Maybe we have this conversation a year from now after Mushrooms are legal in Vermont and people can buy MDMA for the first time from a doctor. I mean, that'll be truly psychedelic. Yeah. You know, we can think about it now, but when it's actually happening, I think we'll get to really, really see what, what the power of these things are.
0: Yeah. That's really well said. Hang on one second here, Dr. McLean. I'm going to hang up with the audience, but I wanted to talk to you for another moment. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. I hope that the world is singing to you and there's a little miracle. that's about to happen in your life. And if you believe in yourself, I believe that you can become the best version of yourself. That's all I got for today, ladies and gentlemen. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that...